GAA Late Night Live every Sunday evening, 8.30 on Twitter Spaces. Follow at Off The Ball. And you're welcome to Off The Ball here on News Talk for your Sunday afternoon. John Duggan sitting in for Joe Malloy until 7. We hope you're doing OK. And it is time now for the Sunday Paper Review. Delighted to be joined in studio by the Irish Independent Rugby writer, Keen Tracy and Arthur James O'D from OTB Sports. Keen and Arthur, how's the form? Not so bad, John. How are you? Thanks for having me in. You're going to New Zealand? I am. I'm very, very excited. Uh, leaving on Wednesday. So, yeah, um, I've never been before. I don't know if either of you lads have been... Um, Sure, Arthur was in Lord of the Rings. <laughs> <laughs> it all—it all seems um, it's all very new. I've been lucky enough to travel with the job. I was in Japan for the World Cup 2019, but New Zealand has always like it's bucket list stuff, isn't it? To get to see Ireland take on the All Blacks in a in a tour. So yeah, I'm really looking forward to. Not looking forward to the the long arduous journey ahead of me, but I suppose it's part and parcel of of it, isn't it? Serious note, Arthur. Were you ever down there, down under? No, never, never, John. How long is that flight? Um. Which one, I suppose, is the question. Um, the longest is going to be 16 hours uh, on top of an eight before that. So, I mean, I'm leaving on Wednesday, getting there on Friday. So I don't think I'll know what's going on by the time I touch down. But thankfully, you're arriving a few days before Ireland's first game next week. And like I said, yeah, it's just bucket list stuff to get to see Ireland playing in New Zealand. Like you hear so much about it, how rugby is a religion down there and stuff. So I certainly can't wait for it. It is still the got the the stardust, doesn't it? The New Zealand mm. fixture, where it's here, Chicago down there, never one down there. Absolutely, there's. I'm sure we'll get onto it in a while. Like there's so much on the line for them going down there, and maybe you know the because Ireland have beaten them since they've last been there. You know the kind of. I think the optics around it have changed and there's a little bit of pressure on the All Blacks as well, particularly after, you know, they've they've come into the tour on back on, on the back of back to back defeats in Dublin and Paris last November. There's pressure on their head coach Ian Foster. Um so there there's a target on Ireland's back going down there. But I mean five tests, it's Andy Farrell was describing it basically like a Lions tour and it really is I mean the two games against the Maori All Blacks as well are going to be seriously seriously tough so um, they're in for a gruelling tour but it's going to be fascinating Cavan six points Sligo one point and Arthur is a, a great Sligo man here and the, they've got a penalty <laughs> they've got a penalty Sligo so we'll see if they can convert it uh, let's go through the back pages and the supplements on your Sunday so you can see their leader of the tribe, a picture of Henry Shefflin on the sideline, joyous after Galway's one-point win over Cork in the All-Ireland hurling quarterfinal. And also FEI chair Roy Barish hits back at Kenny Smear stories. So leaks to the press about Stephen Kenny's future, not uh, pleasing Roy Barrett very much in the Sunday Times. And how did Rory do? Well, he's only three shots off the lead going into the final round of the US Open behind Will Zalatoris and Matt Fitzpatrick. That's the Sunday Times. We have the Sunday Independent Sport. And uh, back from the brink, Clare survive almighty scare as tribesmen set up treaty clash. Uh, James O'Connor, struggle will benefit the banner. And Paul Kimmage, when money is all that matters on the Live Golf Tour, that is the Sunday Independent. We have an interesting story on the front of the Business Post, which is horse trainer group sues Glanbia alleging losses of at least 30 million. So losses of at least 30 million are being claimed by leading horse trainer Aidan O'Brien and a number of other individuals and companies arising from contaminated feed supplied in 2020 court filing show. This is written by Catherine Sands. O'Brien of Sundunica and eight companies linked to the Coolmore stood Ballydoyle Stables operation launched legal proceedings against Glambia Foods Ireland last month. 
The case centres on equine feed, which was contaminated with a banned substance given to the stable's racehorses in October 2020. Urine samples uh, taken from the animals tested positive for an anabolic steroid, which was used to promote increased muscle mass in cattle. Gain Equine Nutrition, which is owned by Glanbia, issued a public statement in October 2020 advising customers to refrain from feeding their equine products to animals until it completed an investigation. That is the Sunday Business Post today. We have the back of the Irish Daily Mail. Another picture of Henry Shefflin. Tribe get back on track. Henry Brace to take on the champions. Limerick as Galway shake off Leinster final pain. And can PGA Tour prevent a mass exodus to live? That is the golf split and Emma's struggle to live up to perfection and Ireland must be wary of a backlash on the New Zealand tour. Sligo got the goal, by the way. It is Cavan seven points. Sligo one two in the Charlton Cup semi-final. We have the sun on a Sunday. Damned United. We have effing burnt through cash, says Richard Arnold, the managing director, pictured having pints with fans. Um, uh, last year was a complete nightmare. So he's trying to get on side here, Richard Arnold. Uh, Jeepers Keepers, but Kieran defiant and defeats Kieran Kingston there. Cork boss refused to be drawn on his future, writes Jason Byrne after the Rebels were dumped out of the All-Ireland Hurling Championship by Galway. And Ooze is no belly flop. So Ousmane Dembele is ready to join the Chelsea revolution, but refuses to watch it from the bench. He wants to start, so he's dictating already, even if uh, he might not even sign. We have the back of the Sunday World... Red blow. More woe for Man United as Ericsson said to say no to move to Old Trafford. We're going to have a United story every single Sunday in the back pages. You can have to expect until August the 6th when the season starts. And you're going to make it work, says Aldo on Jurgen Klopp. John Aldridge has caught him. We have the Sunday Mirror Sport. Slow-mo. Cop fear Salah has begun his long kiss goodbye and will leave for free next summer. And disunited. Arnold admits last season was a nightmare and says United have burned through the cash. And we have the Sunday People, the same story, Manchester disunited. And we have Jonathan Wilson in The Observer, always worth a read. Super subs are back and Grealish, the game breaker, can be the benchmark. So he's always worth a read in The Observer. Arthur, I suppose the hurling is something we should be talking about, given that there's not much newspaper reaction in terms of analysis to yesterday, but I suppose there's a lot of factual analysis. Yeah, I suppose, yeah, it's tough to turn it around, especially with two games back to back like that. I'd like, I, I'm interested from your point of view straight away because you have obviously um, you have a vested interest and I think you've made that quite public we don't need to worry about that Everything I say is made public don't worry about that <laughs> but, <laughs> like, From my point of view and specifically I suppose particularly the one I watched closer was the second game uh, Clare and Wexford and I've kind of seen Wexford a few times this year funnily enough um, against Galway and against Dublin I, I don't necessarily think that they were up to too much and then to see the way Clare sort of struggled yesterday kind of made me think, gee, I wonder what Clare are up to. Because after Limerick, I was like, God, Clare will pass through this. And you allow in for all the other, I suppose, tiredness and everything else and fatigue. And they've played, that was their sixth game of the championship. So you're kind of like, well, you know, fair play. It's, that'll take a toll. But God, it was very, very sloppy yesterday. Like from both teams now, that's not just from Clare's point of view, but from Wexford as well. I just thought it was very, a lot of mistakes, a lot of handling errors. It's a, a lot of problems just in retaining the ball. I don't know, like, I don't know. Do you, I, I gathered, and what I, well, I suppose what piques my interest there is kind of following it afterwards on social media and stuff, the kind of feel was like, that ah, doesn't matter. Got the win there, that's great. That'll kind of, a dirty win like that, that'll peak, that'll suit them all the way now, the better facing Kilkenny. I don't know. I, I, You'll only know the narrative when you see the Kilkenny game. Yeah, so the Kilkenny true. game will tell you that Clare... Uh, 
won at the hard way against Wexford. They weren't at their best. They showed a huge amount of character and that stood to them against Kilkenny. And if they lose against Kilkenny, well, they've gone to the well too often. Okay. in the championship that would be my view on it like uh, Christy O'Connor is writing today Claire 13 more shots in Wexford their conversion rate only 56% as you're saying there Arthur but it was clinical and decisive when it needed to be a similar story in the first game Cork had 13 more shots at the target than Galway but Cork's mass uh, proglyphacy eventually forced their roof to cave in and by the end Galway had nailed 62% of their shots in the wake of Cork's catastrophic 47% conversion rate it was just about enough just about um, I think that these are amateur players. Like we talk about the Nations League and we talk about Armenia. The Heat had an impact on the Irish players in Armenia, in my view. Obviously, they played poorly as well. Clare went through all of the Munster round robin and never lost a game in normal time. It was a titanic Munster final against Limerick. I know you're a Limerick man, Kean. And to be able to rise yourself just mentally, physically, to just go again against a fresher Wexford team with momentum, I think was always going to be difficult for Clare yesterday. And then the way they pulled it out with Aaron Shanahan. Now, Lee Chin should probably got a penalty there was a turning point there late on in the game um, where the the advan- you know, the rule wasn't applied correctly perhaps but a black card and a penalty that Wexford should have got but I felt that Clare the impact of their bench Aaron Shanahan especially um, was a huge thing for them and there was unusual uh, there was goalkeeper mistakes Mark Fanning you know there was a mistake and these things happen and we had a mistake from Patrick Collins in the, in the Cork Galway game but um, Cork will be upset about the fact that they didn't convert uh, Wexford will be upset that they had the game in the in 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 the in one hand on the on the on the match, but not both hands. And I think for Clare, Clare just showed a lot of resolution that they've showed in the championship already. You know, I think we underestimate as well how much like you mentioned the monster final. It was an incredible game. How much that actually takes out of players because we see it in professional sport across the board as well. It's like I know Clare didn't get quite get over the line that day, but backing that up so short in such a short space of time is really really difficult we see it we see it in rugby all the time and I think the mental aspect of what what these players and you like the Bulls for example Leinster against the Bulls mm. surely there's a mental aspect 100% there was travel there was all sorts of that but the Bulls had given everything to beat Leinster and they weren't able to back it up in the final and these are professional players and I think there's an element of that in the GA as well particularly when you see what like Claire emptied themselves in that Munster final it was an absolutely incredible game and you know like you say like I, I'm a Limerick man but like I, I have split allegiances really like I would have I mean my home house is in Clare like I would have you know born and grew up my early years in Limerick but uh, spent the rest of my time before I moved to Dublin in Clare and would have actually hurled against a couple of the current Clare, Clare team as well so like I mean I, I'm always keeping an eye out for, for the results so um, it's kind of a split split allegiances really but um yeah, I just think, you know, we have a tendency to look at the the physical exertions that players put in, but like the mental side is just incredible as well. And what Clare did in that Munster final to take Limerick uh, all the way must have had to take a lot out of them. And I do like I know what you're saying, Arthur. Like, it's funny. Like in this in this kind of the sports journalism game, like narratives are key. And like John, you hit the nail on the head. It does always depend on how they work out before they kind of, because like if, if you think about Leinster, you know, we're all kind of going, oh, well, they've had an easy route through, like they'll be real fresh come the Champions Cup final. And then that narrative was turned on its head. So um, you would like to think that that defeat would stand to Clare, I think, coming through, um, a, like what did you describe it as after a, a dirty game? Um, you, you'd like to think that it would stand to them because it was, it, it wasn't a pretty, I, I saw bits and pieces of it. Uh, it wasn't the prettiest game, but they ultimately got through it and, you know, it could, it could work in their favour. Do you see Kilkenny and Limerick as favourites? Uh, no, no, no. I'd, I'd, see, I'd see Limerick as favourites. Um, I still think Clare are probably the second best team in the country. I still think, I, but I don't know. Like it's going to be very, very interesting. That Clare Kilkenny game 
is like from a neutral standpoint is just fascinating. I really like I, I say neutral. I really hope Clare win, but <laughs> because I think it, at the end of the day I'd rather see Clare win uh, the All Ireland if not if it, if it's not going to be Limerick. But um, I don't think like they they're they're a better team. They have better players. They're better set up. They've come up through a harder way. It's definitely there for Clare, but I don't like it's that same sort of whatever that you talk about mentality as well in Hoodoo, like it just with Kilkenny, like I, I They haven't played since two thousand and six, Clare and Kilkenny. Really? Which is fascinating in the in the hurling championships. It's a long time. And Kilkenny were the team that really put Clare to bed the Loch Nan era, ninety nine semi final, I remember ninety seven, Clare beat uh, Kilkenny in the semi-final 2002 final it was the really the, I know 2000 Kilkenny won the All-Ireland to beat Offaly but it was really the start of the, the Cody year it was 2002 they really took Clare apart in that All-Ireland final remember Henry Shefflin who was on the sideline for Galway yesterday um, scoring a goal in that game uh, also uh, obviously it kind of pales into you know perspective when you when you read uh, about the, the, the tragic news about the passing of uh, Damien Casey he leaves a huge void in the sport that he loved uh, John Campbell writing in the Sunday Independent today that Tyrone chairman Michael Kerr believes Casey had played a big part in sparking interest in hurling in Tyrone and set an example for others to follow you could not have met a nicer person and he was absolutely dedicated to his sport and his county said Kerr for him to have been taken at his family and from Tyrone at such a young age is a tragedy he had uh, Given so much and undoubtedly much more to offer, the 29-year-old had been in the holiday in Spain uh, to attend a friend's wedding and he had an accident in a swimming pool and um, he's passed away. So our condolences, as we said yesterday, at Off the Ball and used talker to Damien's family and his friends and his teammates. It's uh, uh, just awful news. So that's what happened uh, in terms of the weekend, um, in terms of the matches yesterday. And obviously we're, we're talking as well about that, that, that terrible news. Um, let's move on uh, to the, I suppose, the main story across the papers is about golf because the US Open is going on um, this weekend in Boston, Brookline, the country club, Rory McIlroy, Seamus Power doing well in it. And um, Joe Brawley, Paul Kimmage, David Walsh all writing about golf, about sports washing, about morality, about live the live tour, Keen. Yeah, it's it's all over the papers. Um, JD, some some pretty good pieces as well, and I suppose it's it's good to see like differing views as well. I mean, Joe Brawley has kind of taken the direction that it doesn't really matter what anyone says or do because ultimately money talks, and that's his bottom line. But I particularly enjoyed um, David Walsh's piece with Eddie Pepperell. Um, like, you know, like anyone who kind of follows golf even casually will know Eddie Pepperell is a bit of a colourful character. He's not kind of afraid to, to speak out. And it's basically an interview with him and kind of, you know, talking about his friend, uh, Laurie Cantor, who I have to say I hadn't, I hadn't heard. So he's a, a pro golfer as well, but he's gone on to the Live Tour. And I mean, apart from the headline guys who I think we're all well aware, you know, your Dustin Johnson, your Phil Mickelsons, these are the kind of the... The, the lower end of the spectrum guys that they're, they're trying to get into boost the numbers it'd be fair to say JD wouldn't it you'd have a better kind of handle on the golf scene than I would but they're buying credibility and at the moment they're the low level of credibility mm. purchase but as they get better players exactly. in like the Brysons and that yeah. then they're going to get to a higher level and then these players will be discarded exactly and they need these guys at the moment to kind of kick it up kick it off and get the numbers up to make it look better than it is but um, yeah look there, there's lots of good there's lots of good quotes that I picked out from Eddie Pepperell in this um you know, this is, for me, this is the crux of the whole live tour. And I think um, Eddie Purple hits nail on the head here when he says, supposedly this is an innovative product that will be good for the game. That makes no sense. It's totally regressive because there's n- not going to be any recycling within the 48 players. Inherently, it lacks competition. 
and that's a question I find myself keep coming back to I mean you know you're told that this is going to grow the game but I just don't see in any way how it's going to grow the game um, I was away last week so I didn't actually see any of the, the live golf stuff I can't say I would have been sitting down to, to watch it anyway but I genuinely didn't see any of it but you compare that to the last couple of days and I've been absolutely glued to the US Open it's just like fascinating stuff and the, the differing opinions I mean I know Rory McIlroy isn't everyone's cup of tea and that, that sometimes that that really kind of well, why is he not I, I don't know it really could, like I, I, I suppose a lot of people are hung up on the, the sort of the, the national identity and like you know the Olympics thing but like I have to say like I, I find him first of all a fascinating character but also like I mean watching the Canadian Open last week I mean when that guy is in the groove I, I, is there anyone better to, no, to watch? No not, not, not on a day on a day no. And you know like I was listening to you earlier and you'd had text her in will you give it up like that Rory will never win another major I find it hard to believe I mean it's what has it been eight years since his last one he's yep. kind of he had a tough day yesterday he's left himself with a lot of work to do but I know you've been really kind of vocal about it to JD and that you know you've been impressed with how he's kind of spoken up for it and I would totally agree with you I think you know it takes Rory McIlroy hasn't you know want he doesn't want to be I don't think the the, the figurehead for the kind of the morality and you know the good of the game but he's taken it on himself and like the, the week of a US Open I'm sure he could do without it I mean in the build up every single time he was being interviewed he was being asked about it I mean in terms of, we were talk, speaking about the mental preparation earlier in, ter- in terms of GA and you know what players put into it I mean I, I could think of a lot more things that he'd like to be talking about than you know being the figurehead for this so I've been really impressed with how he's kind of stood up to it he won in the Canadian Open last week and had that little dig at Greg Norman as well which I just thought was fantastic I mean just like to have that wherewithal you know on the 18th green afterwards when he'd won it was just brilliant and um, just to go back to David Walsh's piece um, like again Eddie Pepperley just like I found myself agreeing a lot with what he was saying um, I don't think Lee Westwood and Ian Poulter give an SHIT and they don't need to care. They're going to be done with the game in three or four years. Greg Norman doesn't give a crap. He can sail off into the sunset on a yacht. There's no risk for Greg Norman. He's done. And that is kind of the crux of this. It's guys, apart from your Bryson, and I was reading in, I can't remember who had it there, but apparently Hideki Matsuyama now was also possibly, yeah. possibly linked. And it'd be a real shame, like a guy like that who won the Masters and you think of all he's done for, you know, golf in Asia and, and things like that. But, if you just focus on the likes of your Phil Mickelson's, your Sergio Garcia, like these guys are in the twilight of their careers and you can see why they are doing it because it's a money grab at the end and try and fill their pockets even more. But ultimately the question is, how much is, is too much? And I think it was Paul Kimmage's kind of piece touched on this. Um, I think he was quoting someone that was saying, it was an insult to people. Like I, I can't remember which golfer said it, but um, it's to put money, or it's to put a, a dinner on the table is why I'm doing this. But, that just doesn't ring true. It's like you want to put a Michelin star dinner on the table, and it's which it's which you know restaurant you want to go to. So um, it leaves it leaves a sour taste, I have to say. But the the golf over the last couple of days, it, like, is a perfect reminder of what these guys are walking away from. Um, I had also picked out the was it four of the live the live rebels made the cut in two two was it uh, like I mean there's a, just a perfect kind of symmetry harmony in all of that and you could see Phil Mickelson's struggles but Joe Brawley is writing about this as well and kind of like I said at the start takes the kind of a, a different approach and like I find myself as well like there's a lot of food for thought in this because 
I was very curious. Like, I still think your common sports fan, your common person doesn't really care too much about the sports washing stuff and I genuinely do think that's true and I was fascinated to see what kind of reaction Phil Mickelson would get you know the people's champ I've just finished reading uh, Alan Shipnuck's book um, which is excellent I'd highly recommend it for any for any golf fan like an unauthorised biography about Phil Mickelson but he got a great reception in, in Brookline despite the fact that he was stinking the joint out so um the question is do people do you think people like the common person the common sports fan really cares I'm not sure they do no no more than it's very difficult it's very difficult to expect of people as well because I mean that's a, such a, a slippery slope that you can go down and, and that is I suppose a little bit of the point of to a degree I don't agree with everything in Joe Raleigh's article but um, no more than we can't really a lot, and most people don't really care where their food comes from or their clothes come from or you know, and I appreciate sports enjoyment but it isn't it, it's kind of enjoyment but it's not really if you took it away from your life your life would feel an awful lot less rather than just something you enjoy I, I don't think um, what I always think with this stuff is like so with the Live Tour and again I didn't I didn't watch any of it last week but I, I did see some of the clips and stuff that were going around and obviously all of the comments around it and what I'm amazed with these things when there's so much money uh, obviously available is just how poorly they're set up. Now my kind of thing with this thing is that you could you often see it in football, you often wonder so like with Man City say and again we're not talking like for like but there's similar similar human rights issues and ethical issues there at the same thing and from their point of view with the way they've run that football club has been so successful in the sporting sense that they've got it all right, they got their whole process right, they put the whole back room, everything in the, 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 the whole foundations of the thing right, and then Pep Guardiola comes in and takes it all away. I, I like, sorry, takes it onto the next level, like really elevates it, that's your missing piece. I was fascinated by this, that they're going, that they're so prioritised players. Granted, you have to get a bit of name recognition, but guys that aren't going to uh, be around for long. So again, maybe John, you, you're probably more read up on this than I am, that there, maybe, maybe it is with the likes of Matsuyama, and I think, is Brooks Koepka another has been talked about? But well, he's getting touchy at the press conferences. Yeah. Why is he getting touchy? Mm. So maybe they will. Maybe and maybe they'll. Maybe this is just a big kind of bang at the start of it, and then they really put the the nuts and bolts into it, and it all works out, and it's a proper credible thing. I don't know though. I suppose going back to the thing, I don't know what you can expect of fans, really. I like as kind of Joe Brady, a few things that he does point out that I would agree with, like Anthony Joshua fights in Saudi Arabia, no one thinks twice. There's a little bit around it, but at the end of the day, heavyweight championship of the world, you're going to watch that. I think the the football question is the is the really interesting one. So I mean, we don't really have well, we don't have any experience of it because like you know, no one has bought out like Shamrock Rovers or something. But like, let's say you were from Manchester, born and raised, and you were a Man City fan, and you went there with your dad and your granddad or your mom and your grandmother. Like you know, it's in your it's in your blood, it's in yeah. your family. Like that's the the real one that I find kind of would be very difficult and same for, for Newcastle fans and we know how passionate their supporters are when you've actually been ingrained in it it's very hard to say well I'm just not going to go and you know yeah, it's impossible because it's also it's also your outlet you know on a Saturday afternoon yeah. to go and watch the game with whoever it may be and to just suddenly give that up so uh, I for one certainly wouldn't be like you know casting aspersions on people who like fans who still decide to to go and support their team despite the fact that you know where did this the dirty money is coming from and things like that because it's not it's it's very easy for us to sit here and say that but like if Sligo were bought out in the morning, like you know, Arthur, like what, like you know, what, what do you do? Like, I mean, it's 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 such a, a strong part of your life. It's very it's very difficult to just walk away from that. That's impossible. And, and to be honest with you, I, 
I appreciate it might be seen some, it's written somewhat tongue-in-cheek maybe, but at the end of Joe Brawley's article, and he spends the last three paragraphs kind of talking about, inevitably it always comes back to the GA and why that amateurism and the ethos and everything is brilliant, and it is, and that's fine. And then there's that last line there, as my late father was inclined to say, without the GEA we'd be savages like the English. Now, as a line, I appreciate the way he writes, the way he, everything else that he does, that he is kind of for sensationalism and for different things like that. I think it completely underestimates. I, it's, it's funny because in, in the paper I'm reading here, I don't see the, without the GA we'd be savages, is all I see here. Oh yeah, well now that's what it, as my late father, so that's on the, on the, on the online. Well, it's not in the paper. Okay. <laughs> well, as well, that's what I, I am. So I have not made it up. Arthur's after getting the ex-censored version. But I don't, that, I think that completely underestimates if you take that as a microcosm and you take football clubs in England and like they're intensely important to people in Ireland, let alone people in England. And, and as you're saying, if someone grows up in North London, if someone grows up in Manchester, Liverpool, wherever it is, that club means as much to them as Derry GA means to Joe Brawley. And there's no two ways about that. He can kind of write that up whatever way they want and kind of frame that and reframe that to do with ethics and the amateurism and everything else. But that's that's nonsense. Just because football's professional does not mean it does not mean as much. And when you inevitably, because it is professional and because it is the world's most popular sport and it is just eminently sellable, there's going to be money that comes in. But I really, I don't like the outlook. And again, I know I don't like the outlook that it devalues the individuals who follow it or the individuals for whom it is a family affair. Capitalist world. Yeah. Uh, and look, look, the same thing is writing about the same, like when the GA and when so Sky Sports came in involved to do show games. And then it's like, but this, so that's the reality. That was an, an avenue, as you're saying, a capitalistic avenue open to the GA to earn more money. To put back into the association. Exactly, and it was taken. And like, I, I, Which you're, uh, in, in, in terms of a straw man, your, your 80-year-old uncle can't watch. Can't, grand, okay, I appreciate your that. Volu- and your is, volunteer can't watch. And look, it's not, I'm not saying that the, the situation with football in the Premier League is perfect. There's been countless people who are, for whom it was incredibly important, just priced out of it. It's not a good thing. I'm not saying that what's happening there is a good thing in the slightest. But I think to sort of demonise the people who follow those teams as if they're somewhat participating in it, they're just, it's pawns. No more than most sports fans are pawns. Like, again, I, so I, it's, it's very, very difficult. I, I don't know. I don't know what... Life is grey, and I don't think there's a, a black and white answer to this. I think with Liv, I think why Liv has uh, got more possible attention than other things, it's corporate America, first of all, that's being taken on here by the Saudis. That's the first thing. And the Americans don't like the disruption to their corporate gilded world. Um, the Formula One race goes to Saudi Arabia. Saudi Arabia has not taken over Formula One. A boxing match happens in Saudi Arabia. Boxing is not being taken over by uh, Saudi Arabia. A Qatar hosts a World Cup. It's unsavory. The 6,000 people have died. None of us should be watching it, but we will watch it. Um, we'll be able to put that uh, moral judgment in a compartment in our minds and forget about it for a month and we'll all still watch it. Um, but they're not taking over a sport. The Saudis are taking over golf. That's what the attempt here is. It's a hostile takeover of a sport uh, to turn this into exhibitions versus competition. I think that's what has got people so exercised because uh, we're all invested in this. We're all watching the US Open. We all feel we have a piece of uh, investment as fans and people make all their money out of advertisers and broadcast deals and that's how they make their money if nobody watched it. Um, we all like to think that this thing wouldn't happen. What the Saudis are putting in front of our faces is that um, if nobody watched this, we'd still do it. We'd still pay the golfers. And that is the scary thing about it. Um, 
what a sport without competition. We think there's a purity to it when we sit down and we escape from our lives, which sometimes can be cloudy and difficult. And for four hours, we can watch Rory and Seamus Power and like these players play like duffers and remind ourselves that, you know, when we mess up on the golf course, it's actually all right. Um, but then when that's taken away and these guys just going around the golf course with no fans and no interest and getting millions and millions of dollars, you're kind of thinking, what is the point? So there's a challenge to the consumer. There's a challenge to the structure in America. There's a geopolitical issue to this, I think, with the fact that um, there's an ego in Saudi Arabia, MBS, that the, there's a degree of strain between the Saudis and the US government. And I'm maybe like over analyzing this too much, but I, I do think golf is very much a symbolic of American power. And there's a degree of challenge to that, that golf does not like. Um, and therefore, there's a huge uh, heightened uh, attention on what the Saudis are doing. And you're bringing all the 9-11 conversation into it. Whereas, you know, Formula One race happens there, a boxing match happens there, a World Cup happens at Qatar. There's less uh, of an outrage, which is... Uh, in some ways, you could say double standards. There's an independent contractor argument to this. There's an antitrust argument to it. Um, that these players, are, like if you left uh, one organization to go to another organization where paid a lot more money, you can understand it. But sport is not uh, typical business. Um, the uh, Paul Kimmage article is interesting because there's a quote from Colin Byrne, the uh, Irish caddy. I wouldn't want to play golf for a living, he told me once. It's a tough job. They're very talented people. And every time you tee up in the game, tests you to the core. But what I've found over the years is what you get these guys who play well and suddenly they're experts in everything. And they never want to speak to you on the same level. They're always looking down on you. And any relationship I want to have has to be on the same level. I've been brought up with the game, but the modern golf environment just seems to be elitist, money-grabbing, materialistic. It smacks of everything nouveau. I don't enjoy that. There's a tremendous history of golf. The people I enjoy are the people who are genuinely interested in the game. But money's dominating everything now. It doesn't attract deep-thinking people. And on Gray McDowell, uh, at the very end of the piece, Gray McDowell, writes Paul Kimmage, was raised in a three-bedroom terrace house in Port Rush in 2015. My last time to interview him, he made $9.3 million. His golf had started to slip, but he had blue chip sponsors. He was brilliant with the corporates. He'd won a major. People liked him. There was talk of a seat at CBS. Then he signs for the Saudi tour, sets himself on fire. It's Tuesday afternoon in Boston. Rory McIlroy's walking up the 18th fairway, looking at the screenshot of the Belfast Telegraph. Front page, big headline, McDowell, I'm proud of what I'm doing for Saudi. He shakes his head and returns my phone. I want you to ask you a question you can't answer, says Paul Kimmage. Go on, he says. What did you think when Graham torched himself last week in London? He pauses. One word will do. I say he used four on Phil he thinks about it sad so that was a, <laughs> a great way of finishing an article on Live Golf and the Sunday Independent today yeah like and it, it is sad that's that's ultimately what it is I mean Gray McDowell is, was being spoken about as a future Ryder Cup captain and in a dare manner of all places you know like, that, like in your home county like, and that is that is dream stuff and you, you, you talk about you know what golf has done in these shores and David Walsh raises a good point as well. Like there's uncertainty about what the DP DP World Tour European Tour does next. One school of thought says the tour's legal advice discourages banning players who jump ship. Another says that the tour's sponsors would not support suspensions that lessen the quality of tournament fields. And I think that is a crucial issue in all of this. Like, what does it mean for? the European tour because Eddie Pepperell is making the point that in you know 10 years or even maybe sooner five years the European tour could be no more and the guys like your Sergio Garcia your Westwood Poulter like the, the European tour made these guys and yet they're the ones who could ultimately bring it, be bringing it down and I just don't like I just don't understand like how someone like Graham McDowell would risk his whole reputation 
um, to earn more money than what he already has. Now, like I thought the, the Phil Mickelson book was a bit eye opening in that it was a reminder that, look, you don't know what's going on behind the scenes. Like allegedly he's got huge gambling debts that he's looking to pay off. Like, you don't know what's going on in the background that why there is such a hunger and a need to earn more and more money. Like Paul Kimmage says, the last time he had interviewed him, he'd earned 9.3 million. I mean, it's just McDowell, yeah. McDowell, yeah. I just don't know where, like, where you draw the line for these guys. And clearly, there is no line, and that's that's ultimately yeah. what it is. They don't see. Well, the line, well, well the line is, well, we've been offered a huge lucrative deal uh, at the twilight of our careers for a lot of these golfers to set up their um, lives for their family and themselves. And I can understand that. The issue, like, just say it's for the money. Just say, this is for the money. I'm doing this for money. And then people go, you know what? Actually, I appreciate your honesty. Yeah. Don't tell me you're trying to grow the game. Don't tell me that live is exciting. We got shotgun starts, got fifty-four holes. We're gonna, you know, we're gonna make golf appeal to. Nah, give me a break. Mm-hmm. Give me a break. The golf and the appeal is what we've seen the last couple of days. An amazing course in Boston. Uh, 156 players. Anybody could qualify for that U.S. Open. Did uh, and uh, Will's out of Taurus. Matt Fitzpatrick have never won in America on a, in a big tournament, leading the U.S. Open, uh, beating to win a first major. Rory McIlroy, Seamus Power, ranked 446th in the world at the end of 2019, and now is a. Uh, not outside an outside chance to win a major title. A guy from Waterford who gr- grinded away on the, on the PJ Tour. That's what the, these are the stories. There's no story out of a Live Golf Tour event. Now maybe that will change. Maybe there'll be an uneasy alliance at the end of this. Like and like the key thing about the Live Tour is ranking points. Mm-hmm. If they get ranking points, then the players can get into the majors. And you can have a degree of rival tours. If they don't get ranking points, they're not going to be seen at the majors unless they're at the Masters, which is an invitational because they won't be able to get in. That's the key thing. It's whether the Liv gets the ranking points or not, and that's up to the governing bodies of golf to decide. So it's, it's a tricky one, and it's probably going to go to the courts. The Ryder Cup is important as well, isn't it? I mean, you know, you mentioned ranking points getting into the majors, but the Ryder Cup has to play a major issue as well. Like, I mean, there's a news piece in the, the Sunday Indo that, you know, it could come a point where they might not be allowed to play Ryder Cup. And you think back to Graham McDowell, you know, he won his major and stuff, but like so many, when you think of these golfers, so many of them, particularly Sergio as well, you think of the Ryder Cup and they're synonymous with it. So these guys aren't allowed to play, not necessarily with these guys, but the guys coming through who do decide to go. It's a massive kick in the teeth for them. Okay, we've got to take a break on the Sunday paper review. Arthur James O'D and Keen Tracy. Lots more to talk about. The US Open itself, what happened on the course. We'll also talk about the Irish Tour to New Zealand, the rising around that, and the Nations League and Stephen Kenny. We're back after this. And you're welcome back to Off the Ball here on News Talk. John Duggan with you three to seven, sitting in for Joe Malloy today on the Sunday paper review with Keen Tracy from the Irish Independent Rugby Rider and Arthur James O'D from OTB Sports. Just going through some scores here in the Charlton Cup semi final. Cavan eleven points, Sligo one three. Uh, we also have in ladies football, so halftime in the senior football championship, Galway 10 points, Westmeath 3, halftime Cork 2-9, Donegal 1-2. Latest score is Cavan 5 points, Mayo 11, uh, also in the uh, football championship. So that's what's going on there at the moment. Uh, we also have Tipperary and Dublin in action, and we'll come to that in a moment. Uh, so that is Dublin against Tipperary and the latest score there is halftime Dublin 1-3 Tipperary 3 points that's what's going on around the houses in the ladies football championship uh, just before we kind of move away from golf uh, Dermot Galise uh, who was a friend of, of OTB and, and of News Talk here um, his last US Open writing about it in the Sunday Independent Kean Open Road leads on to memory lane yeah, it's a, it's a really nice piece it's kind of away from the, the kind of live controversy and 
the the head wreck that that is and yeah like Dermot Lees is just such a brilliant storyteller I'm sure you'd agree JD like yep. every time he's in here and off the ball like he's always a must listen he's the history just, man he has oh, lots of stories about you know going to these tournaments and the, yeah. the character he's, he met and it's a it's a refreshing way there's not enough of that mm. in I think in writing and sports writing it's very much match report based or opinion based and sometimes it's not historical enough for these, this is the way the sport has changed over the years or this mm. is the, these are the characters I met and the, the, these are the stories of the people I met and that's the one thing that he's able to do in a very original way I find yeah it's, it's old school um, and I mean like God he's covered like so so much of the, the golf the golf calendar like over his illustrious career and I think like when I started in the Irish Independent Carol McGinty was kind of just finishing yeah. up and he was another one who was fantastic at telling the old stories and like the scrapes that he used to get into on their, on their travels but yeah like I, the one thing I find about when I'm reading Dermot Lee's pieces and when I'm listening to him when he's in here is that he paints such brilliant vivid images that you feel like you're there with him and like that is like a, a, such a, a special kind of trait in a writer I'd love to be able to have it myself uh, maybe one day but um, yeah like he's he, he was he's writing about that the last US Open he did was Martin Keimer's triumph at Pinehurst in 2014 and he's kind of talking about the stress of going through Dublin airport and going through US immigration and stuff and basically why he won't miss having to do these long treks which I have to say when I was reading that it wasn't making me it was making me less kind of uh, excited about what, what awaits me in, in Dublin airport on, on Wednesday when I'm, when I'm going to New Zealand but yeah he just he, he, he just it's kind of a, a through the years of his own kind of experiences um, and he he finishes with a, a, a kind of a funny paragraph where he says, um, finally, I'm not reading anything into my designated seat in the media centre, which is beside 83 year old Art Spander, a legendary figure in American golf writing. He's been telling me that his first US Open was in 1966 at the Olympic Club, where he was first working for the, the San Francisco Chronicle. Uh, one of our younger brethren, brethren had the temerity to describe us as the Sunshine Boys, um, that our position at the top centre aisle facilitated easily, easy first aid access if necessary still it's been a long fascinating road I just thought it was a, a, a brilliant uh, a brilliant way to end and there's a really nice picture as well I feel like every time I'm in the the in doing the papers with you guys I always kind of point out the the importance of the pictures that go with the pieces and how like it's laid out and stuff but there's a really brilliant like simple picture of Dermot Gleese at work yesterday from the press room at the US Open in Brookline and it's just yeah it's just like there's no one else around him it's a kind of a, a lonely shot but um god what a career he's had I mean you know fantastic yeah yeah just an ama- amazing writer yeah yeah went to the Masters for oh, we're talking about three decades going to the Masters and uh Almost like one of those old school boxing riders, isn't it? You mm. know, the, the American uh, boxing riders. It's a very, it's a very interesting tradition. All those things, just as well. I remember not too long ago. I think it was after. Um, God, I think he made it over a hundred. Roger Angel, the New Yorker writer. I think who kind right. of wrote about baseball. I, I think he died not too long ago. He's, but he, he lived to a fantastic age. But it was a similar sort of thing. Like I, what I didn't realize, like this guy was just loaded. I kind of knew the name, and I wouldn't be a big baseball fan, so I read little bits of him. And then I was listening to this interview he'd done a few years ago, uh, I think, for with David Remnick for The New Yorker. And he was talking about, I didn't realise he'd been the fiction editor of The New Yorker. And his sports writing was just something he did kind of as a hobby. Right. <laughs> oh, like, now, maybe that changed at different times, but that was certainly the uh, the genesis of it. It wasn't that he was this, I just couldn't believe it. I was like, it's just that, it's like, God almighty, there's talent. <laughs> it's like just yeah. this. Yeah, it's amazing. Which was when given time. And when given, like, and when you know, I suppose, your subject so intimately as the likes of Dermot Gleese does, that it's just, it's amazing what you come up with. 
It's a different gig as well, I think, like that kind of colour writing, because, you know, it, like I, I know it as well from covering rugby matches, particularly like the, the big Six Nations games, one person like will be given the task to, to write a colour and it's very different to writing a match report. And often, oftentimes it's it's much better because you're not doing the kind of rudimentary, the ABC and the scores and stuff. And obviously you have that report, but like the essence of like your Sunday papers, your daily papers of, of sports journalism is that kind of colour-y type writing. And there's few who do it better than than Dermot Gleeson and like you know I was just kind of telling you like at the break that you know he was obviously around covering Greg Norman in his in his pomp but I don't quite remember Greg Norman you know when he was you know a bit bit too young for that but um at the golf course back home where I where I used to play in Shannon um on the 18th uh, just off the fairway there's a plaque marking an enormous drive I can't think off the top of my head how many yards it was uh, the Greg Norman hit I think it was in 90 back in the 80s maybe early 90s um and every time I played that whole, like when I was younger, particularly, it was always like, okay, can I get up to Greg Norman's? You know, it was like this mythical thing shot in two. And as you got older, like you were getting closer and closer, never quite got next or near hitting it. But Greg Norman was always this kind of like, wow, like, you know, he played here. And it was, like I said, this mythical figure. And now all of a sudden you're like, oh, you know, I don't think I look at the same, the plaque the same <laughs> well, again. Well, maybe if you hit the plaque, you'll actually get an invite into the live tour. Yeah. And yeah, I'd have a big and, question. And all the, riches, the associated <laughs> riches that, that come with it. Yeah, but it's, it goes back to our point about reputation, doesn't it? I mean, like I said, I, I knew who Greg Norman was, but it was just like just how did he hit the ball here? I don't think I'd look at the plaque the same way now anymore. That's the reality of it. We need more colour riders, I think. A lot of writing is about the what happened and we can all, I think, have an opinion on, what, on the what but it's the how and the why and I think that's what Dermot Gleeson has mm-hmm. been able to do very well. Like you have uh, George Kimball, the, the late George Kimball of, uh, who wrote in America about boxing and I remember Bert Sugar and all these kind of characters and these are the kind of people you, you just go, I, I always go straight to the colour people um, if I can. I don't think there are enough of them in sport. But um, it's been incredible entertainment, Arthur, hasn't it? The US Open. Uh, like it, it is just absolutely fantastic. Like it's, it's like going to the cinema for four hours. Yeah. God, yeah, it felt longer than that. A lot longer if it was if you, if you were going off my TV yesterday. I got the old reminder that I needed to adjust the box. I was watching it that long. Our TV was getting hot. Yeah, <laughs> very, very hot. But we, um, it was unbelievable, John. And like, I, I'd be guilty of. I'd, oh, I'd only generally watch the four majors. That'd be kind of my my thing for it. But that'd be the way it is now, anyway. I, I, after live. Yeah. Well, <laughs> it's just it was. Um, I couldn't. I probably hadn't. Um, I don't have ever seen a competition before where the course was having such a, a a detrimental sort of impact to the game. It was really fascinating even how they developed across the day. Like, And I was fascinated by when, I suppose when you were watching it, like, God, we were watching it, I think basically from Clare-Wexford match was over onward. So through to whatever it was, one o'clock. And I just loved the fact that all of a sudden you're seeing, oh, I've seen uh, such and such come through this 13th now. How's uh, Rory McIlroy going to approach it? And it was just, I just found it fascinating. The challenge and like, it was tough for them sometimes because you're kind of, Inevitably, you're kind of cheering for Rory and you're hoping he does well, but you're seeing how difficult it is. Mm. And I think that does, um, God, it adds a whole other dimension to it. It is fascinating to see how they just how they battle with it. The, the, that's the best thing about the US Open. Obviously, the, the Masters is the Holy Grail. And if you were to have one course where you could play, like, absolutely, that is at the top of your head. And I don't think too many amateurs or scrubbers like myself would have any great desire to play Brookline. But <laughs> there was something sadistic about watching. I was watching Xander Schauffele yesterday, like, chipping in the ball, just coming back to him. Like, because you made the point earlier, JD. Like, it does make you feel a little bit better about yourself. Like, even John Ram on the 18th yesterday, you know, not getting out of that bunker I mean 
these guys are human at the end of the day but this course and I was just reading a couple of tweets from American golf journalists who were there at the moment and apparently like it's even worse now is in the conditions so brilliant like, it, bring it on exactly yeah <laughs> you know like some like you know we were watching Rory last week at the Canadian Open what did he went on to 17 yeah it was under, the high teens yeah, yeah. something like that yeah and that's all well and good but I mean you know this this score could come down even less than four under what the leaders are you know today and like that is fascinating because that, that is what ultimately what the US Open is about isn't it it's the the, t- the tough courses in the tough conditions and we're certainly getting that I think this is a different Rory we're seeing it's a fighting mm-hmm. Rory it's fire in the belly uh he did not have his game at all yesterday. In previous majors, I would have seen him have his game, but then lose the head or let the shoulders drop or the head to go down. And I haven't seen that at all uh, from Rory in the last few days. And that, that, that to me, is the work he's done with Brad Faxon on putting and Bob Rotella on the mind. And I think that whether he wins tonight or not, I think there is a major coming soon for Rory, possibly at St. Andrews. Seamus Power, I'll just say to anybody out there, I, I, I know this is a first world probably conversation, but... Uh, I was in La Hinch in 2019. Seamus Power finished 60th. He'd come back from America. He was in the 400s in the world. Um, nobody wanted to do interviews with him, you know, relative to the other uh, stars on show at the time. And I kind of felt sorry for him at the time, just uh, observing his struggles, as it were. And to see him now, uh, 41st in the world, top 10 in the PGA, now only five shots off the lead, another huge finish uh, in prospect at the US Open. It's just a, a, a real example of, of determination, believing in yourself and that you can you can turn it around. So I'm just so delighted for Seamus Power and for the people who are behind him from Waterford to the US. He's, I know he probably hasn't had that flagship win yet, but for me, he has to be one of the most underrated Irish sports people at the moment. Like you said, his from rag to riches story is, is incredible, but... It's his consistency is is remarkable, and like he turned up again yesterday, and he he had a, a, a unbelievable eagle. I think it was on the eighth, and you know he battled back. He showed some of the similar qualities that Rory did, but I mean I think his progress is still flying under radar. I mean, I, if you ask any Irish golf fan, of course they'll know who Seamus Power is, but I'd say if you ask any Irish casual sports fan, they probably wouldn't know who who Seamus Power is, and maybe it will take a good finish tonight for him to to kind of get into people's consciousness. But I mean, his story is truly remarkable. And just to touch on the point you made about Rory, JD, I thought it was very interesting. Like the putting has always been the big thing with Rory, but what I thought was fascinating yesterday was he didn't hold a putt in the front nine at all. And, you know, he could easily have let his head head drop, but the amount of par, par putts he made coming into the back. Eight one putts. Like in, in nine holes, was it? Yeah, yeah before the last and yeah. up to 17. Yeah. Like that is remarkable for a guy who wasn't, he was, he's been putting well actually over the first couple of days, but wasn't putting well in the early stages of his third round and then still didn't let his head drop. Like I think that that is one of the biggest turning points we've seen because was it a 73 he shot and it was probably one of the best 73s yeah. he's, he's shot in his career so he's not out of it yet either the difficulty of it's remarkable like uh, and I, I I was kind of looking at this last night and you were kind of we probably do a slight disservice not not necessarily the three of us in this room but slight disservice to McElroy in terms of what he's achieved and I'm fascinated you're talking about Shem's power as well like, and I suppose the, the, just the gradations in golf of what success is mm-hmm. yeah and I'm fascinated by the fact I was looking at this last night so I, and you'll correct me if I'm wrong and I'm kind of going from them I think I was looking at it after so from when Woods won his first in 97 and he's yeah. won 15 majors, right? Yes. And then thereafter, I think the next who's won the most in that time is Mickelson with six. Yes. And then thereafter, Rory with four, and I think a few others. So that's like in the modern, in the modern four, thing. Yeah. Like, it's outrageous. It's outrageous how, like, uh, when, you, when you put it in those terms and you think of how flooded the kind of the golf field is with kind of people who could and how, like, it's so funny when you're listening to the commentary as well and 
obviously they, they, they know these guys intimately and they're kind of talking about how good this player is at this and like, oh, they are excellent at this. And it's like, I've never heard of them. And you're kind of, it's just remarkable. It's remarkable what he's done. Well, Will Zalatoris has never won a tournament in America. Like BJ Tour, <laughs> Matt, Pat, Matt Fitzpatrick has never won a tournament in America. Rory's won twenty-one, mm-hmm. and he's won four majors, as you say. Lee Westwood never won a major. Ian Poulter would never won a major. Oh, by the way, they're going to the Live Tour. Uh, <laughs> Sergio Garcia won one major, and all the talent he had. Colin Montgomery never won a major. Luke Donald never won a major. And then you think, sorry, that, what brought that up in my mind was Arrington, mm. which is just like I know you. I know you, you're taking an eye on the time as well. I know you could keep you here till four o'clock talking about Arrington, but I just. Well, Harrington is the greatest ever sports person in my view because Harrington got the most out of his talent. Now, Rory has had God-given talent since he was chipping those balls into the washing machine. And I think Rory's done very well in his career. It's just that we have these unrealistic expectations, I think. Yeah. It's like you, become, you, you become a victim of your own success. You, you really do. Like, Rory's career has been amazing. We see it in other sports as well. Like, I mean, with Leinster, you know, like, they're judged on such high standards. But they're ultimately standards that you've created for yourself. And Rory is like that as well. So I go back to the texture, like, just, you know, oh, Rory will never win a major again. And it's just like, like, why would you say that when he's clearly one of the best golfers in the world and of his generation? And that is an important point of this as well. You kind of touched on it, Arthur. This is a golden generation of golfers when you look at the quality yeah. of young American players. Like, you mentioned Will Zalatoris coming through John but you think of Justin Thomas Bryson Ashambo, Scotty Scheffler Scheffler, who looked human for the first time ever yesterday Um, so to achieve what you have and and that goes back to the point about Seamus Power even making it on the PGA Tour and being consistent in it like golf is obviously such a worldwide game but the number of people trying to make it into that very very small bracket is unreal so yeah I think like guys like that should be acknowledged more and definitely Seamus Power deserves more recognition than what he's getting Keegan Tracy and Arthur James O'D are with us on the Sunday pay-per-view. If you want to text an opinion or a question, you can do so on 53106. We're on the air with this part of the show until half three. We're on the air in total until seven o'clock here on Off the Ball on News Talk this Sunday afternoon. John Duggan sitting in for Joe Malloy. It is Cavan 14 points. Sligo, one goal and eight in the Charlton Cup semi-final. There's 48 minutes on the watch. Stay with us. Don't go away, folks, because we're back after the news. And you're welcome back to Off the Ball here on News Talk for your Sunday afternoon. John Duggan sitting in for Joe Malloy on the Sunday paper review with Kean Tracy, rugby writer of the Irish Independent, and Arthur James O'D from OTB Sports. Going through the best writing of your Sunday. It is exciting, this Charlton Cup. You can't say it's not. Uh, Cavan, 16 points. Sligo, one eleven. Two points between them. 55 minutes on the watch at Croke Park. Westmead and Offaly throw in at four. Uh, in the Ladies Gaelic Football All-Ireland Senior Championship, latest scores, sponsored by TG4. Cavan 2-8, Mayo 15 points at Pierce Park. Well into the second half there. It's Tipperary 3 points, Dublin 1-3 in Temple Tui. Galway lead Westmead by 10 points to 3 at Chim Stadium. And in Clane, it is Cork 2-9, Donegal 1 goal and 2 points. So, Kean Tracy, you're going off to New Zealand. What is the best rugby riding of a Sunday? Uh, yeah, there's a couple of kind of look back pieces from Peter O'Reilly in the Sunday Times, uh, Brendan Fanning kind of doing similar in the Sunday Independent. Um, Bernard Jackman's column is always worth a read. I think he's been a great addition to the, the Sunday Indo kind of, you know, a bit of an analytical view. And John, you kind of talked about a bit of colour, like there's always a bit of colour in Bernard Jackman's piece. And Neil France is also writing in the Sunday Times about sort of uh, Leinster and Ireland's set piece woes, uh, really, which I think is, is definitely worth talking about as well but um, yeah like Peter O'Reilly's piece kind of I suppose sets it up well before before the tour I mean it's it's kind of we're in that kind of strange phase now where the URC final was yesterday and it kind of went under people a lot of people's radar I guess because it was an all South African final and it was I watched it it was decent decent enough but it, I mean it was it was a strange day actually because 
yeah, not a strange day. It was it was a great day of rugby on paper because you kind of started at half eight yesterday morning with um, the Super Rugby final between the Crusaders and the Blues, which. Like I was writing about this in on Saturday that it was a real kind of taster of what's to come for Ireland. I think in New Zealand you had the two best New Zealand teams. I think it was twenty or twenty one all blacks on show. The weather was horrific in Auckland, which is where the first stop of Ireland's the first test is going to be on in Saturday, Saturday two weeks, uh, or Saturday week now at this stage. So yeah, it was it was interesting and you know, Neil Francis is writing about this about kind of Ireland's, you know, let well Leinster's line out struggles, but any problem that Leinster have, Arden have the same problem for obvious reasons because Le- Leinster are going to be the bulk suppliers to the team, you'd imagine again. Neil Francis is writing about how the Bulls basically picked off Leinster's line-out uh, last weekend in, in the semi-final. And it is a it is a big concern because obviously Ireland are going to be without now Ronan Keller, who's first-choice hooker, and Dan Sheehan is definitely an able replacement. But I think you're going to miss having that one-two punch with, you know, Keller starting and Dan Sheehan coming off the bench. And, yeah, like I think there's big issues over Ireland's scrum because, you know, Leinster's scrum has been kind of picked apart uh, a couple of times over the last few weeks as well, particularly in Europe. But they conceded a lot of penalties in their quarterfinal against Leinster and in, or against Leicester and in the semi-final against Toulouse. So there's no doubt teams are looking at it as, as and a chance to get at uh, Leinster and Ireland. And the line-out is, is something interesting as well because... One of the big takeaways I had from the Super Rugby final yesterday was Sam Whitelock, who was back for the Crusaders and did a number on the Blues line-out, like just an incredible performance but it was a real kind of warning for, for Ireland of, in terms of what to expect like this guy is one of the best locks in the world uh, and like I said just picked off the Blues line out and they it just strangled hold of them didn't give them any foothold in the game and Crusaders ultimately ran out winners but Neil Francis is kind of writing about the I suppose the art of calling and you know he, he was obviously a caller a line out caller back in the day but he's talking about a hooker and he says sometimes at this level a hooker gets bamboozled if he can't pick his space in the line out if it was easy when there was only one person jumping up for it it is like when you were teeing off and there is a river to your left you try not to look at the water but you know you are going to hook the ball into the drink no river there and you will drive the ball straight even if the hooker gets the ball to where it is supposed to go if you are going to challenge it there's a good chance that you can pick it off that mentality should be that every opposition throw every opposition throw should be considered your own ball and it's it's a good little insight into you know it, it's a good analogy we've spent so much time talking about um, the golf and you know standing on the first tee and, or any tee for that matter what the nerves must be like but you can imagine a hooker kind of looking down the line of a line out and it's such a narrow target to to hit and yeah I think it's 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 an issue that like Ireland are going to have to work on and you know Neil Francis is touching on kind of Leinster's you know you'd have to say disappointing end to the season they must analyse why they ended up spending large portions of most of these big matches defending their line it almost seems like Leinster chose to defend their way to victory and they've come up short too many times when it matters most there would have to be small changes in their thinking on their weaknesses and some personnel will have to be rootlessly dispatched in the off season or these near misses will continue so I think a few weeks ago before you know the season kind of came to a, a shuddering halt you'd have to say for the Irish promises I was definitely quite optimistic about Ireland's chances going down to New Zealand I mean you touched on an early JD they've never won down there the, the, the All Blacks are definitely vulnerable on home soil it's very different but there's pressure on them there's still a couple of positions that they're trying to figure out they don't have 
this locked and loaded team that they had when they were winning World Cups and so there's definitely sort of areas that already can get out there but there's no doubt that the way the kind of you know Munster season petered out really disappointingly Connacht had a really tough tough year all round Ulster disappointing semi-final defeat and Leinster obviously beaten in a semi-final and final so your optimism is kind of tempered a little bit which is probably it's probably no harm to be fair you know I don't think anyone is, is expecting Ireland to go down there realistically to win a series I think that would be if they were to do that, that would be incredible. And kind of Bernard Jackman is is writing about this um, in the Sunday Independent. And you know the the power issue has come up again, and it, it's never going to to go away. I mean, because like Ireland just don't produce the power athletes that your South Africa, your France, and your England have. But an interesting point here that Bernard Jackman makes is this may surprise many, but the All Blacks aren't one of the most powerful teams in world rugby. And while they present a formidable challenge. Even if Ireland beat them, it will do nothing to quell the doubts around our ability to beat teams that physically look to strangle us. I don't know if I would fully agree with that. I know the point he, he's making that they're not quite, um, you know, Eben Etzebeth and Franco Mostard in the second row, these big giant, you know, locks and props up front. I, I, I know the point he's getting, but I think if Ireland were to go down and beat New Zealand on home soil, even in one test, I think that would be enormous for the psyche of Irish rugby. Um, you know, we're going into a World Cup near ne- next year and we already know the, the route that they have in terms of the pool playing South Africa and Scotland. And if they were to get out of the pool, which you'd expect that they will, they're going to be playing France or New Zealand in the quarter final. So really it's the, the toughest World Cup draw you could ever have. But I think a tour in New Zealand is the ideal preparation, and particularly with the two extra games against the Maori All Blacks. Like I said, they, those games are n- no gimmies whatsoever. You, you just have to look through the quality of players that they've picked. Like TJ Perinara is very unlucky not to be in the All Blacks squad and he's going to be in the Maori, the Maori squad. So you're going to have guys who are trying to put their hand up to say to Ian Foster, the All Blacks head coach, you got this wrong. So it'll be very interesting to see how Andy Farrell uses those games. So we've got the first one on Wednesday week, which is a few days before the first test. So you'd imagine, like a, a lot of guys that, you know, are in the squad need games. Like you look at someone like Bundyaki hasn't played in weeks because Connacht, and he actually missed the end of Connacht season. So it'll be interesting to see how he juggles it. He's, he's picked a 40, 40 man squad. Um, there's so much potential in it, but I think there's a couple couple of areas that they need to, to get right as well like I mentioned around the set piece in particular Yeah, I, I'm fascinated from your point of view just as someone who's kind of expertly watching this so if you in this comparison so again we're one year out from the World Cup and I suppose the, obviously the 2018 was landmark for so many years for mm-hmm. what was as you're kind of saying now I suppose still like if you're saying if they go down there and if they were to even win one of those tests against the All Blacks that it would be a big, huge achievement. I'm kind of wondering what stage they're at from your point of view compared. So from 18, it felt like everything was going to be perfect right into 19. Is there? I know, and as we were saying earlier about narratives, like that, it's kind of you'll only know afterwards. But is there? What's the best case scenario? Well, like 2018 will always be referenced in, particularly in World Cup cycles. But for me, Ireland's biggest issue was they didn't evolve in 2019. Teams figured out how to play them. And I think the last few weeks, you know, I don't think Andy Farrell or his coaching staff believed that that this Ireland team have come anywhere near their peak. Like they didn't win a Six Nations. They didn't win the Grand Slam like Ireland did in in 2018. But I think the last few weeks in terms of the flaws that have been showing up in Leinster's game plan, because I was certainly someone who 
believes that Leinster had actually figured out a way to get around these bigger teams. I mean, when you think about the semi-final defeat to La Rochelle last year, everything that they had done since then was built around in terms of evolving the game plan. How are we going to beat a team like La Rochelle? So to have actually played La Rochelle and come up short again, I personally think that, that it's, it was really damaging and I think we saw evidence of that in the Bulls game. I'm not saying it was the same like for like, but I mean, you, you, turn, you talk about the hang-up and we go back to the very start of this conversation. We spoke yeah. about the mental side of things. So, I think this this particular Ireland team has still got a, quite a bit of a journey to go on. I think even if they were to win a test down in New Zealand, I don't think anyone there'd be no DVDs being released about it. Like you know, maybe like there would have been back in the day. But I think there is potential there. But I think the flaws that have been shown up have shown that they've actually got a, a good bit of road left to run. I mean, the out half position is always going to be up for debate. I think there's huge issues in terms of the front row depth, particularly at prop. I mean, even at lock, there's a, there's a bit of an issue there. Um, so there are. It, 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 it's, it's not a bad place to be in at all and this is like the ultimate test going down to New Zealand Andy Farrell came out with a brilliant quote actually during the week where he basically said like this is proper test test match international rugby it's not like walking down and I'm paraphrasing here it's not like you know walking down Ball's Bridge and someone rolls down the window and tells you oh you're brilliant at rugby doing that like that's not going to happen in Dunedin Auckland you know so that mental image is just brilliant because we hear and that's what I'm so looking forward to like we hear about how obsessed the Kiwis are and uh, you know the hostile kind of reception and uh, Brendan Fanning is, is writing about this in in the Sunday Independent as well that on one of the tours that they went on back in the day there was no one even there to greet the Ireland team I mean when they arrived in, in New Zealand now I think it's the, the, it's a little bit different nowadays obviously like relations are, are much better but I think the respect has really changed like it, it was a cliche for years when I was first covering um, the Ireland team when the All Blacks were in town in, in November that you know the only player that they, they could name or they cared about was Sean O'Brien like because they had ultimate respect for him and then everyone else was just kind of you know a byproduct of it and it's it was interesting um I marked it here. Gary Longwell in Peter O'Reilly's kind of look back piece, he's, he's thinking back to, to 2002. Um, this kind of really resonated me about the Sean O'Brien point because uh, this is uh, a comment here. If you, if you read the local newspapers, it seemed as if Ireland consisted of O'Driscoll, Brian O'Driscoll, Keith Wood and 13 fillers in. And for years, that's what it was like as well with Sean O'Brien that, you know, they didn't really care about anyone else. But I think the respect has changed now and the Ireland team are flying out in a couple of different batches I think it just wasn't possible to get everyone on the same plane so the first tranche left today I think more are going to leave tomorrow and there's a group of 70 altogether when you include the backroom staff as well like that's an enormous uh, undertaking I think it's the biggest tour uh, I'm right in saying that Ireland have ever undertaken right. so when you include the, the two extra games and the 70 people so um, I think there's going to be welcomes there like there wasn't there, there could be a couple of hackers waiting for them when everyone yeah. arrives unlike like Brendan Fanning says when there was no welcome for them at all Yeah. The Welcome, Brendan Fanning. Uh, all black Gary Wett and star second row for Auckland that day in Eden Park at a different take and proceeding. Psychologically, they must be feeling down, he said, after the 62-7 exhibition. To be honest, I'm a little disappointed in the Irish team. There's no doubt about that. I thought they would have put up a ch- bit more of a challenge, if you like. And then wrapped up in all of this was another humdinger where the tourists were hammered to the tune of 58 points by Manawashu, where one Joe Schmidt had yet to make his breakthrough. Their captain, Stu Bundy Cruden, Aaron's old man, dipped into the Gary Wetton post-match playbook, expressed disappointment in the best Ireland had to offer for a nuggety, sinewy, hard-arse flanker. Cruden looked thoroughly pissed off at being shortchanged in the warm-up ahead of his team playing Samoa the next week, which is kind of funny stuff in the uh, in the Sunday Independent today. 18 points to 15. Cavan, 18 points. Ligo, 112. 68 minutes into the Tottenham Cup semi-final. The Joe Schmidt 
conundrum, um, if there if that's it's not probably the correct word, but um, the aura of Schmidt is returning to rugby, and now it's uh, in New Zealand. He's been doing stuff with the Auckland Blues. He's now, I think, a consultant Ian Foster. Is there a chance we might see Joe Schmidt as an All Blacks coach before long? I would say there's a, a massive possibility there. There is, yeah. Um, it's interesting. Like I mean, he said he was retiring from coaching, but I don't think anyone really believed that because he's such an obsessive about the game. And you, you look at like the, the amount of success that he's had, and sometimes when, like, and I'm very conscious of this every time I speak about the the Joe Schmidt Ireland era. You can become kind of too focused on what happened in 2019 in that really disappointing year and forget about all the, the good stuff that came before it. Like because it was just great. Like it was like a, a, a pinnacle of Irish rugby, like that 2018 year. Now we just spoke about it there. They, they peaked too early, but you're seeing a lot of like I've been watching a good bit of Super Rugby this year. And, you know, Joe Schmidt has been working with the Blues and you're seeing a lot of kind of the same traits that you saw in the Ireland team. I mean. Joe Schmidt, I don't think there's anyone in world rugby really as renowned for him as, you know, creating like set piece moves. And I think he's actually been working a lot on the the Blues defence and their kind of off field stuff, like creating that culture. Um, now, a lot of Ireland players would have said that that became kind of smothering in the end. But for a while it was working and it was great. And yeah, so he's he's a consultant to Ian Foster, but... If you're to read the, the, the small print, JD, he doesn't start until after the the Ireland tour with the All Blacks. Now, <laughs> I like I would love to be a fly on the wall and kind of see what's going on behind the scenes because I would find it very hard to believe that if Ian Foster is getting Joe Schmidt as part of his backroom team and he is under pressure, like I said, make no mistake about it, he is under pressure from the Kiwis a year out from the World Cup. Um, I would find it hard to believe that he's not going to tap into Joe Schmidt's knowledge of, of Ireland. And it just adds another fascinating layer of intrigue, I think, to to the tour that's ahead. And you know, if Ireland were to you know win a series, as probably unlikely as it may seem, I would struggle to see how Ian Foster would stay in his job. Uh, given and like rugby doesn't have this like kind of fire and hire culture that that football has, and I'm not suggesting that in any way. But the, the Kiwi public will not stand for for that. Well, it's, it's it, they're a bit like Kerry football, aren't they? You know, they expect this victory and nothing else. Uh, that's why I always found it fascinating that Graham Henry they kept Graham Henry after 2007, and they gave him another shot, and then he won the World Cup in 2011 at home. They're into six minutes of stoppage time at um. Croke Park Cavan 18 points like a 112 in the Talton Cup semi-finals so Cavan have the edge there um, Scott Robertson I think is very popular he was doing the breakdancing again wasn't yeah. he after the in yeah. the rain after the so he'd be another popular candidate for a New Zealand head coach job if Ian Foster did, did fall on a sword he he absolutely would be but I think the reason that Joe Schmidt might be kind of even have edged ahead of him despite the fact that the All Blacks generally want you to have been you know involved in the system before you kind of take on the All Blacks job which coming into the Blues to me was a stepping stone to that and now taking on a consultancy role with Ian Foster's backroom being, to me is another stepping stone for that and I think Joe Schmidt is going to be a you know break glass in case of emergency that if it all goes wrong for the All Blacks that Joe Schmidt will have been in there and he'll be in place he's done his time albeit only one season as in the season just gone but he's previously worked with the Blues uh, before he knows the workings of New Zealand rugby so I would say even though I think the longer term I think um, Scott Robertson is, is definitely going to be an All Blacks coach I mean the amount of European clubs that, that were in for him but he's wanted to stay in New Zealand won the Super Rugby title again with the Crusaders yesterday but 
Joe Schmidt will actually be in the All Black setup, and I think there's more of a chance of Joe Schmidt if again it went wrong of Joe Schmidt coaching the All Blacks at the World Cup rather than Scott Robertson purely for that reason because he seems to be taking the steps into the into the setup, and it'd be fascinating, wouldn't it? Um, it's just a pity that he's not more kind of hands on now, particularly from my point of view, because going over, you'd love to be able to get to to chat to him and you know at, at a press conference and. And things like, and I see a friendly face. I don't know if he'd say the same about uh, <laughs> me or anyone else going over, but it would be good to see him. Yeah, Ireland against New Zealand, the World Cup quarter final next year. Andy Farrell and Joe Schmidt. That'd be some. Uh, mm. That'd be some. You'd fill a week of uh, newspaper print with that, wouldn't you? Uh, Nineteen points for Cavan, one twelve for Sligo. Seventy-two minutes into the Charlton Cup uh, semi-final, the six minutes of stoppage time to be played uh, just to finish the rugby uh, just the, even the first paragraph of Peter O'Reilly's article situated near the bottom of New Zealand South Island Dunedin in June is cold and wet and feels like the edge of the world look out across the enormity of the Southern Ocean and its next stop Antarctica I want to go there yeah well like I mean I'm reading that going like because the one you may never see you again you'll, you'll end up in Dunedin and you'll, like, you'll, like, you'll just like you'll get lost in the mist the one, the one thing that like the kind of a lot of the fellow, my fellow journalists who are going who've been there kind of several times for Lions stores and things like that are saying like it's very hard to get your head around going into the depths of winter from now albeit the weather isn't great here in Dublin at the moment either but it's very hard to get your head around it but when I was watching the Super Rugby final yesterday I was going God I can see like, <laughs> I, I know what they mean like it was absolutely bucketing down it's cold it's wet it's dark it's dark early but I mean yeah I, I just can't wait to, to see what it entails I can't wait I'm going on my walking balls bridge this evening and somebody winding <laughs> down the car window and go Duggan you're great yeah. <laughs> uh, at, what, at what I don't know um, uh, Kieran Dyer just for anybody watching on the digital and social channels just the um, uh, going to bring it over here yeah I've got it over here yeah just the, the article in the Daily Mail by Oliver Holt my greatest hope is that whoever's liver I get I do that person proud I would be precious to get a second chance at life England striker our former star, rather, Kieran Dyer, is staying positive in his battle with serious disease. So Dyer is 43 years old. 20 years ago this week, he's playing for England in the World Cup quarterfinal against Brazil. But last year, he was told a rare condition he suffers from, primary sclerosing cholangitis, or gitis, cholangitis, a disease that scars the bile ducts and gradually causes serious liver damage. Had worsened, he needed a transplant. He's been waiting list for a donor liver for six months. If I don't have the transplant, he says, my liver could pack in. There'd be nothing they could do for me. And also in the article, which is absolutely essential read, um, he's facing his biggest battle now. I was really scared when I got told I needed a liver transplant, he says. I thought that was it. But then when the ter- surgeon and the transplant team came around, they got so many people in the team, coordinators, the Physicists, physios, psychiatrists, psychiatrists. Uh, you see people who've overcome the operation. It's kind of routine for the hospital now. They do so many of them. When I was first diagnosed, my eyes were yellow, my skin was jaundiced. The PSC is the scarring of the tubes in your liver, the tubes that produce bile. If the scarring gets so thick, the bile can't go through the tubes into your liver and goes into your bloodstream. That's why I was going yellow, where the bile was going into my bloodstream. And to finish, this is part two of my life. I want to see what I can achieve. The hard thing is I'm dependent on someone else's misfortune to get it but if I'm given another opportunity at life I'm going to embrace it we wish the best for uh, Kieran Dyer of Ipswich Newcastle West Ham QPR Middlesbrough and England he was a, a huge talent 33 England caps dogged by injuries throughout his career uh, Kieran Dyer but um, just shows I suppose Arthur the uh, the fragility of life and you wish him well yeah that's devastating that's extremely sad yeah you don't he's someone I've not really thought about in a while I suppose cause just when he kind of no. ventured off but when I was Properly coming into football first, maybe 10, I suppose, it's 20, sorry, not 20, obviously, but early 2000s. And he was just that new, be part of that Newcastle team, like with Shear and Bellamy and all these guys, Shea Given, obviously, coming through. It was just such an exciting under Bobby Robson. Yeah. It's, um, 
Yeah, I, God, I hope that works out all right for him, to be honest it with you. It reminds me of John Lomu, actually, and I was lucky enough to, to meet him and chat him before he unfortunately passed away. He had real bad kind of struggles with his liver as well and like you said John it just shows the fragility of life but also like I mean you have a tendency to hold these guys up and knowing, knowing more than Joan Alomu like this yeah. indestructible force like on a rugby pitch an absolute true trailblazer and yeah like I mean you don't kind of get I suppose starstruck or whatever much in, well I certainly don't nowadays in terms of people who you're chatting to and meeting in the game but I have to say meeting John Alomu that time a good few years ago was uh, yeah a real cherished memory I have yeah, well said. And other soccer riding, Arthur, we have obviously the kind of, you're always going to get the post-mortems on the uh, Nations League and the Republic of Ireland and the constant Yeah, chatter. Well, there's a very uh, interesting piece. You pointed it out to me first um, in the Sunday Times, Paul Rowan, talking about Troy Parrott. Um, and it's kind of, I suppose, it's not saying, I suppose, what is going to happen one way or another. There's a, there is a, a degree of uncertainty, of, I suppose, of what happens for him next. And it's it's you kind of also at the same time there's that fear that despite being so at one point and again we we got to be realistic he's extremely young but it's funny like when you see the likes now of Obafemi kind of it really clicked for him at Swansea towards the end of last season and he'll kick on you presume again and, and you're just kind of the next decision almost kind of feels for Parrot who kind of had a, a bit of a mixed bag over the last four Nations League games. It kind of feels like it's going to be essential for him, and you really want him to land. Kind of the loan moves have been okay for him. He's probably not going to make the breakthrough at Spurs. No, he's not. You know, and it's just that's that's the reality of it. He probably won't get another. Obviously, will not get into another Premier League. Yes. Thing. No, not yet. That's what I mean. So that kind of next yeah. move. But like, I suppose people always kind of laud the competitiveness of the Championship. But it's like there's also that unpredictability. Like you could latch yourself on to a thing that's going brilliantly and you it completely fires you up again the line or you go somewhere that for all intents and purposes seems sound well run Derby County <laughs> exactly and all of a sudden <laughs> God almighty you could be getting relegated like so it's it's extremely important for him it's, it's, it, but it, it's interesting I, I'm I'm fascinated by those kind of there's a I, I, geez, I, no, for college I, I don't the quote I think that uh, he who lives early he who matures early lives in anticipation and I think for someone like Parrot, who was so bright, like everybody talked about him and the way they talked about him. I, think, I remember Stephen Elliott, I think, on one Saturday with you, talking about seeing him play in Clontarf somewhere even, that far back. And just this guy who is just supremely talented. We've seen glimpses of that talent. But you are kind of now, it's like, right, well, MK Don, Millwall kind of didn't, it was okay. MK Don's was kind of okay when you went there. And it's that next kind of decision that you really, you want to see him kind of fulfil his potential even some degree of it like because it is there like he's obviously got the way people talk about him like he, he, you just kind of want to see it happen though but it is it's so fragile well the one line out of it I took out of the article going on loan as playing men's football yeah and realising what you have to do throughout a game I think I've matured a lot over the three loans I've had I'm just happy it's starting to click but as you're right it's the cusp now it's make or break to a degree it is uh, with, with Troy Parrish we had this at Robbie Brady Robbie Brady was the man at Man United he was going to be the, the star at Man United and he's had a very successful career we all remember Lille but you know he's a very successful career Burnley and holding all these teams but we're talking about a global league that is now much more competitive than it was 30 years ago in terms of Irish players and other players like from Wales and Scotland breaking into this league and that's what we're seeing with Nathan Collins now that people are going wow well 
Nathan Collins could be working at Vincent Company, Josh Cullen could end up at Burnley, all these things could happen. But then Burnley could have ownership issues. It might be right for Nathan Collins to get out of Burnley. And that's where agents, that's where family comes in, that's where, uh, you know, living your life the right way comes in. Uh, that's where advice comes in. That's where dedication comes in. And these are the things that are really important now for Dry Parrot because we're seeing, I think, with his game, a bit more, as you say, maturity, a bit more aggression at times, a bit more intelligence. Because Troy Parrott, for me, for anything I know about him, he's always been a player that has instinct to be in the right place at the right time and score goals. Uh, you wouldn't say that he's an amazing athlete or he's the quickest player you've ever seen. A bit like Harry Kane has the ability to be in the right spot. We saw that, for example, like even like in the, I would say, call them minor games against Lithuania, against Andorra last year, against Scotland, when he was able to make the run. Never played a dumb about me before. And then, then uh, over Femi and scores the goal. So, yeah, you have to be kind of surrounded by you know, the, being advised. Like is is so crucial because I mean, I'm sure they don't read the papers or listen to to what we're what we're saying. But like I mean, we do tend to have uh, a tendency to overhype players, and I think you're starting to see that now with Nathan Collins as well. Like the goal was unbelievable. He's clearly very talented, and I'm guilty of it as well. I think back to someone like Jordan Larmer in rugby who when he first broke on the scene we were going yeah. wow like he was nominated for young world player of the year and you were going wow the sky is the limit for this guy and he like he's had injury problems but he hasn't kicked on to the same level I mean it would be interesting to see in New Zealand and I think like sometimes you need to take a step back like I mean I've, I've heard people saying oh Nathan Collins you know comparing him to Paul McGrath and things like that I mean yeah. like it's kind of like just let, let's just temper it. like he he played unbelievably well the other night and he's clearly super talented massive potential but like sometimes you kind of have to rein it in and I think we do tend to go a little bit overboard and I think that we're desperate though we're desperate we're, we're desperate we're desperate yeah. for it. and that's what happened with Tro, Troy Parrott as well I mean he's the, the answer to, to Robbie Keane you know he's going to be the one to score the goals rather than just letting him kind of develop and I think we're starting to see that now with the with Stephen Kenny and you look through this I actually was only thinking about this um, yesterday you look through the spine of that Ireland team at the moment now you've got like Bazunu and Keller obviously in goals you've got Collins at the back you've got Knight and Malumbi and then you've got like Parrot Ogbene um, up front um, and Obafemi as well it's like and Tommy Conlon is is writing about this like the headline light at the end of the tunnel and there is a sense of that I mean I I I, I was going to I didn't get to any of the games in, in this window because I wasn't around but in the previous one I don't get to go to Aviva as a supporter that often anymore because I'm generally in the press box working there at rugby games but I just felt like the amount of goodwill there was behind starting particularly for the Portugal game like it felt like such a massive occasion like it, it actually felt like being at a Premier League game is the best kind of way I can describe it even the walk up Lansdowne Road that night I'll never forget it it was it was unbelievable so I think people are you know I don't know I, I, I understand the critics like you should be beating teams like Armenia but then you have to factor in the heat and all that but Sometimes I just think like people's expectations of Ireland as a nation are just wildly out of sync with what what they should be. Um, there are young players coming through. There's going to be bumps in this road. This is not like going to be an overnight success. But like I said, when you look through the spine of the team, you can see what Kenny is trying to create, and you can see him allowing these lads to flourish. Because like you you mentioned Troy Parrott playing on instinct, JD, and that goal was just purely instinct and like down to Obafemi's pass and down to the header you want to see more of that and I think Kenny is allowing these guys to flourish and, and like 
the last two games were obviously positive the last two results but that doesn't mean they're the finish article by any means at all like there could easily be another defeat that will set them back again and it's about how you kind of respond to that but I just don't think Ireland are suddenly going to turn into a team where you can expect them to win all four games in the Nations League window that they just had uh, Philip Quinn's article in the Irish Daily Mail on Sunday under Kenny Ireland have not found winning easy six wins in 26 games is a modest 23% strike rate which falls to less than 16% for the three wins in 19 competitive games he also points to a, a, a conversation Liam Brady had on the Stand podcast uh, with uh, Eamon Dunphy so this is the quote you're kind of scratching your head about Shane Duffy wondering why is he doing it is Stephen Kenny telling him to do it we've seen the Irish team do that far too much in my opinion and uh you have to look at the results and say they're not good enough. This is Liam Brady. Uh, so not everybody has the um, necessarily has the view that everything is rosy in the garden when it comes to the Republic of Ireland team. And that's obviously good. It's a healthy debate that there will be many, many people with many, many different views on the progression of the team. The alternative with all of us, those types of things. And, and to be fair, I think, I don't know if we're in a bubble or whatever. I, I think generally the, the people are more positive than negative, maybe. Certainly people covering it. But what's the alternative? Like what? What? And people kind of write, what are we harking back to that? You kind of goofball. to get scrappy, scrappy one 0 wins. And like I said, like this is a long, a long term plan. And I was not surprised, but I actually thought it was like enlightening going to the games in the previous window. And I could go back to the particular Portugal game, like walking out of the stadium that like, there was young kids, like everyone singing Stephen Kenny's name and stuff. Now, granted, there's been games since that, but I agree. I think most of the, the fans going to the game oh, yeah. are very much behind us. And like to go back to Tommy Collins, he's kind of writing about, you know, an identity crisis. And I understand the point he's making, but I actually think there is an identity to this Ireland team or certainly you can see what they're trying to make their identity the problem is we're not used to in Irish football having the identity that Stephen wants to create so like you said JD it's it's a hoofball but I don't think it's a, it's a crop sorry it's a crisis as such I actually think it's encouraging to see the identity that they want to become I think that people out there are more always always more intelligent than you give them credit for and I think people understand that structurally Irish football has had a huge amount of challenges yeah. other than self-inflicted and the game uh, you know, FAI are saddled with a huge amount of debt and uh, obviously they're trying to work on that at the moment. Um, but they realise that there are bigger structural issues rather than the who's on the sideline uh, managing the team. Like how many players are playing Premier League football on a regular basis? Mm-hmm. Nathan I mean, Collins last season and Seamus Coleman at the time. On. Like it's a completely different landscape. It's, it's like it's literally one that hasn't really, no Irish football managers really faced. No. Like it just just considering as you're saying, like because of the change in the dynamic of how football is in England, that the fact that again it's it's very it's like and and that's not to say that players aren't as good, but just the competition is so fierce. Which gives Brexit gives us an opportunity mm-hmm. to then to develop an uh, an indigenous industry until the age of eighteen, get people to get a proper education, and then if they want to go, they want to go. But you're also then seeing Kevin Zeffies, the James Bank was moving to Italy. Um, but I really do think that. Soccer for me, uh, Gaelic games to me is an industry in the country, and like you just mentioned, the, the quality of facilities around the country and hurling and football, local clubs. Um, I don't know about rugby, uh, Kean, uh, to the same extent, but I do think that soccer does need government support. With my view, to to get these new uh, generation of talents in, but um, I, sp- I I th- I think sometimes we're kind of we're just so desperate for mm. so, we're so desperate for Nathan Collins to make mm-hmm. it, we're desperate for Troy Power to make it, we're desperate for oh, oh but family, oh he did something, you know, yeah. what's yeah. he going to do next? You know, there there is there, because we know what these days are like we know what these tournaments can be we know that you know any of us lucky enough, lucky enough to remember Italian 90 or USA 94 or even Korea and Japan despite the, the circus it became um, when we got to the football part of it 
we know what these things are like and you're seeing like I know this year aside you're seeing even this week they're naming the cities for the World Cup in USA and Canada and Mexico in 2026 we'd all love to be there it's part of our identity you know, go back to what you're saying in this in the, earlier in the conversation Arthur like being a Newcastle fan is somebody's life it's their identity it's their social currency it's what they talk to people about all day they put on the shirt on a Saturday afternoon they might have had, not have had the best of weeks so to be asking them after the game well yeah you won 3-0 against Man United but what about the sports washing yeah, yeah. they don't want to hear that they just want to have their drink I think a lot of that is about, you know, that's what we, we're all trying to, that's like, the, you even t- tell through the speakers of Nathan Murphy and Stewie Burma doing the commentary last Saturday, well, you can really feel, you can feel the atmosphere here mm-hmm. for a Nations League game against Scotland. So people want a bit more of that, I think. Uh, 53106, lads, what's Ireland's scoring average under Kenny compared to the same amount of games prior to his appointment? No, well, we can check it out, no. And exactly, lads, calm down and let players develop. Some will make it, some will won't. Just don't blow them up to ridiculous status before they got there. Uh, they're good players, obviously, they're worth an Irish jersey, but they're not yet the golden child or the best player in the world. Talk to them about it. Talk them about them, but don't blow it out of proportion, says Beardy Dave on 53106. Nice piece as well by Paul Rowan on Noel Campbell, who passed away this week. Colourful Campbell was an Irish pioneer. I remember he was the first Irish player to play in the Bundesliga in the 70s, played for Fortuna Cologne and uh, played for the Republic of Ireland as well um, a, g- a good few times in the 70s. Uh, here's I quote here, Campbell Ahombird said he was there for the money really. He was also typically honest when later in Michael Walker's book Green Shoots he described his bizarre relationship with the Cologne chairman and millionaire owner of the club Jean Loring. He loved the bones off me but we'd get into terrible arguments about my drinking and smoking and not looking after myself. <laughs> a fluent German speaker Noel returned to Cologne many times after he retired for reunions where he's at the top table at all the social gatherings no doubt his old friends in Germany will be raising a glass to his most colourful of characters as he takes his place again at the top table. Lovely peace and uh, may no rest in peace. Arthur and Keen, thanks so much. Great stuff. Cheers Eddie. Enjoy New Zealand. Thank you. Um, <laughs> be chatting to you, no doubt. Yeah, we will. And uh, have a great time. And obviously, hopefully, Ireland will do well and win a game or maybe win a test or maybe win the series. So that's been the Sunday Pay-Per-View. Arthur James O'Dea and OTB Sports and Keen Tracy and the Irish Independent.